On this epic episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 65 and 66 from 1982. Laura Banks discusses what it was like to be featured in Star Trek II as Khan's navigator aboard the USS Reliant. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto consider Bejo Trimble's Star Trek pole. Burt Bruce reflects on the differences between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan, plus the Star Trek arcade game, In Search of, T.J. Hooker, Fantasy Island, and more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hoorah, tally-ho. Hey, baby doll. Hey, puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog Magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app, and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We are on tour. You can meet us at the following events and conventions. Once again, we will be presenting panels as professional guests at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia, Labor Day weekend. What is the best thing about DragonCon, cutie pie? Well, I think it's the Trek track, really. Just um, everything on the Trek track. Their fan panels and their um, celebrity panels. Everything. Trek track is essentially a Star Trek convention within a convention. It is so much fun. And once again, we will be leading the Star Trek section in the parade. You're handing out some of the wristbands for those who want to march with us in uniform in the parade. How can some of our listeners who are attending Dragon Con, how could they contact you? Uh, we are on Facebook uh, under the Starpod Log and Starpod Trek podcast. You can message us there or as Nayar and Kavora. It is such a charge. Just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Downtown Atlanta. Those who are attending the convention and those from the surrounding counties. Just cheering on everyone who is in this parade. It runs for over a mile long. So definitely check it out and look for us on the Trek Track at DragonCon. Monsterama, the incredible classic sci-fi and horror convention in Atlanta, Georgia, returns on Halloween weekend. Special guests include Laura Banks and Nicholas Meyer. So it's essentially a Rathacon reunion. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Monsterama has been around several years and it's always been a lot of fun. It's the best cross-section of horror and sci-fi. And to see these two fantastic guests together could be once in a lifetime. I've never seen them both together. You've seen Laura Banks some years ago at Dixie Trek, though. 
Yeah, I did see her before. I remember her. She was um she was a very good guest. I mean, a, a great speaker. She is a lot of fun. Our listeners will be able to hear the interview with her later on in this episode. She is just has so much energy. And she has so many incredible stories in her new book, The Wrath of Blonde. Absolutely excellent. We'd look forward to seeing her there. And our Trexgiving tradition continues as we will attend Starbase Indy in Indianapolis, Indiana, November 24th through 26th. Join us for this amazing Trek family reunion. We love Starbase Indy. Starbase Indy is like the conventions used to be in the 80s. More intimate, more fan-based, and they weave in so many real-world scientists into the convention. And they talk about how science of today is going to affect us tomorrow, getting us closer to the Star Trek world that we always dreamed of. Yes, Starbase India is uh, Star Trek and STEM-focused. And they always have some great Star Trek guests, and it's just a, it's a great fan-run convention. Look forward to seeing more of our listeners there. Starlog Magazine, issue number 65, cover date, December 1982. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. A hand for Doohan. From Diane Fair in Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you so much for that great article on James Doohan, Scotty, in number 62. Scotty has always been my favorite character. And James Doohan is a very talented actor. Articles on Scotty are hard to find, since many writers focus on Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly. I'm not trying to discredit these great men. I just wish Mr. Doohan were further front in the lineup. I have to agree. That was a great article in Starlog. Yeah, I mean, Scotty doesn't always get enough credit. I mean, yeah, Doohan was such a great actor, and Scotty's a great character, but... You know, Doohan being able to do the accent so well and so many other accents that he can do. I love reading any of the articles about those who especially don't get as much screen time. As much as I love Captain Kirk and you love Mr. Spock, what makes the Enterprise crew rounded out are everyone else on the bridge. So I agree, and I love how Starlog gives balance to all these actors and, and interviews with them. Yeah, Starlog finds all the other actors that, that we're interested in, not just the, uh, the biggest ones. Log Entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. What's new with Nova? In January 1983, the acclaimed weekly science series Nova kicks off its 10th television season. To celebrate the anniversary, a book all about the mysteries of life the advances in science, and the show itself has been assembled for publication this month. This is something we have to have in our collection that somehow we skipped over. Because we were those nerdy kids that loved science shows on PBS. Big fans of Nova. Yeah, I used to watch Nova. It was always interesting. Yeah, a science show... Um, uh, more about things on Earth, you know, instead of Cosmos. Like, Cosmos was a great science show about space, and Nova was more about Earth. It sparked our imaginations. It goes hand-in-hand hand with all that Star Trek is about. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, Science knows still practically nothing about the real nature of matter, energy, 
dimension or time, and even less about those remarkable things called life and thought. But whatever the meaning and purpose of this universe, you are a legitimate part of it. Star Pod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. And uh, welcome to the section uh, as we look at the fan scene from the December 1982 issue of Starlog magazine. Now, this this was an interesting uh, article by B. Joe Tremble, wouldn't you say? It was, we'll just say different. <laughs> what did you think of overall? Uh, she, she talks about cleaning out some junk and finding these poles from the 70s. Yeah, it's, she, yeah, basically she said this in about five, six paragraphs of, I cleaned my desk and found these. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was a lot of build up too. And so we're going to look at the results of some polls from the mid seventies. Yeah. That, that would have been enough right there. Yes. So she, um, they had developed, what was it? Something like 15 or 20 questions. Some of them didn't get answers, right? Well, there were two uh, fan polls that, that fans sent out to other fans. Um, in the mid seventies and um, one person had like nine questions and another person had another 16 questions. So, but we only have responses to the, the nine questions. So yep. I think that's what we're going to cover here. We'll today. just focus on those. That's the most interesting part, hearing what people were thinking in the seventies regarding a future Star Trek movie. Of course, this is uh, probably around or after the time that Gene Roddenberry went back to the Paramount lot, got his office back, and started working on some ideas. So why else would we be talking in the mid-70s about a Star Trek movie? So the first question was, what type of story would you most like to see in a Star Trek movie? And um, there were several things you know, different types. But of course the winner here was an action adventure film. Right. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> that is kind of what Star Trek is. Yes. And, and again, this is before Star Trek, the motion picture. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the choice for action adventure should have been listened to. <laughs> And the next question, we'll just move on from that. Yeah. So the next, I'll do the next one. Please. So, um, it is which of the following choices would you prefer the emphasis on? I'm not going to give you all the choices. The number one choice by 291 fans thought the Enterprise crew should be featured the most. <laughs> so I guess I have to again say, uh, duh, that's what Star <laughs> Trek is. Yes. I mean, are you going to? Here are some of the other choices now that we're talking about. Yeah, Alien sure. creatures, science and technology, um, the Enterprise returning to a future Earth. Uh, if you're going to do Star Trek, it's the people and the ship that we saw in the 60s and that we have the most affinity for. So, yeah, yeah Makes that's what sense. we'd like to see, right? Yeah. In my uh, notes here, I wrote, well, no bleep. I'm not going to say the bleep, <laughs> but yeah, you, you can figure out what that is next question which episode of the tv series most resembles the type of story you'd like to see in a movie now the big vote getter here was balance of terror 
Balance of Terror is a tremendous episode. Yes. But it's interesting to me because is it the most Star Trek episode out there? I don't know. But I, it's I, got a lot of action. It got a ah, my bad. There it is. You're right. It's got a lot of action. Yeah, there's a recurring theme here. There is because it was followed by Mirror Mirror and then City on the Edge of Forever. Those were the top three vote getters. But Balance of Terror was the main choice. Do you want to read the next question? Sure. So the number four is which Star Trek episode slash movie plot idea most might most appeal to the non-fan? And the winner here with 136 votes is The Trouble with Tribbles. And I think then, that's a good choice, don't you? Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, it was um, a decent amount ahead of the second choice, which is City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, I I, I think, um, you know, that's just a fun episode. And I could see why if you were to make a movie similar. And, and in fact, I'll just postulate this. Use the word postulate there. Wow, big word. Thank you. Uh, that you could you could probably say that Star Trek for the Voyage Home had that feel to it, right? It had yeah. the feel of Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah. And look how um, widely acclaimed it was. It was the first Star Trek movie to do well overseas. It it um, you know, it was just a smash hit when it came out. It made Star Trek mainstream. So I think that, that I get that. I can see why people would think that. Exactly. You were going to say something else. Was, did I interrupt? No, I mean, it just, again, it's non-fan. What, what would appeal to a non-fan? And you hit, you hit the nail on the head. It's trouble with tribbles. And that's why um, Star Trek four did so well. Yeah. It attracted the non-fans. Yep. Yep. Uh, the next question was, when should a Star Trek movie take place? And I think they mean inside the Star Trek universe, right? Yeah, And most people said during the Enterprise's second five-year mission. I thought that was an interesting answer. Yeah, I did too. I would have thought most people would have said, well, let's continue the five-year. Right. But people kind of were looking at the five-year as being done. And let's get the crew back together and do a second five-year. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So number six here is, should the Star Trek film be controversial. <laughs> and there was a resounding yes. Now they want an action adventure film similar to Balance of Terror that's controversial. Yes. Okay. That controversial could be many things, right? Um but, definitely. But definitely a conflict would help and action movies typically have some kind of conflict. Well, and, and you're right. And controversy um, comes in all shapes and sizes and varieties. And Star Trek is very good at digging up controversy or, or opposing views on a subject. Yes. And putting them on display for the viewer to decide. So I get that. I, I, you know, Star Trek has done that its entire run. And so I hope they continue to do that too. Hope the producers continue to do that. Next question. Are you primarily a Star Trek fan or a sci-fi fan? And, of course, this question is going to the people filling out the survey. And um, the vast majority said, we are Star Trek fans. Well, you're doing a Star Trek survey. I get that. 
I can see why most people would say yeah. I'm a Star Trek fan. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's, I think that question is weeding out the, the fans from the generalists, if you will. So. Yep. Yeah. You don't see many Isaac Asimov fans responding to a Star Trek survey. Right. <laughs> They're rereading the foundation for the fifth time. Yeah. <laughs> good book. So very good. Um, number eight is, do you believe, do you belong to a Star Trek club? And this one's spanning a page for me, but, um, but yeah, it's 479 fans said they belong to some yep. organized Star Trek group. It was a big yes. It's a resounding yes. Again, Which, I think that was a loaded deck. It, it, it probably, and, and I can imagine that that's how a lot of the survey went out was to the clubs. So you might've been, you know, if you sent this out to clubs, then people in the clubs were responding. So there you yeah. go. Otherwise, in 19, we'll just say it's 75. In 1975, how do you get this survey into the hands of Star Trek fans? Right. Right? Because it wasn't in Starlog at the time. No. So how else are you going to do it? Exactly. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think things might be a little loaded on this one. This was very telling. The next question, what age group are you in? And the majority of respondents said 10 to 15 years old. I was surprised by that. You know, I, I was, and I wasn't just because for me, I caught this mostly in syndication, you know, cause you come home from school and you sit down and watch Star Trek every day. So I'll agree with that. I fit right into that age group at this time, too. I guess I was thinking that the older fans in the Star Trek clubs would be the ones responding. College, post-college. Right. So I was I was kind of surprised that so many 10 to 15-year-olds responded. But that's cool. It that's is great. cool. And, yeah. and again, like you said, and I'm glad you said it. It's the uh, syndication group, right? The second generation of fans. Yes. That were really pushing this thing forward. The the original generation of, of fans that watched the show in the 60s, well, by now they're out of college or in college or having kids, right? Married and, and starting their professional careers. So it was the yeah. second generation that was really pushing and getting steam to roll this boulder forward. Right. And if you look at the the second highest was 16 to 20. Yes. So a large majority is that, that second and, gen yes. fan, like yes. you're saying. So yeah. um, where 21 to 30, it's probably where they saw it in the first run. Right. And, you know, it's, it's less than half of the other two combined. Yep. Yep. And, and that, I think that just cements how important that second generation was. Yeah. Um, I agree. So that's you and me. It is important. It is. Yeah. You better listen to us. (laughs) We're second geners. (laughs) We're second geners. For the original series. So that doesn't make us OG. That makes us 2G. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you look at this uh, survey and the answers that came from it, you can get the conclusion fans wanted to see a Star Trek movie based around the crew. Again, I say, well, no bleep. 
dealing with an alien culture and a story similar to Balance of Terror. There you go. Yes. I wish they would have had that survey or used the survey for the Star Trek motion picture. Yes. That's yes. We could talk about that one all day long. B. Joe mentions uh, near the end of the article that Harv Bennett's choice to use space seed as the um, connection to the second Star Trek movie. It was not a popular choice space seed in this, uh, in this survey. Um, The episode only received one and a half votes from fans. I don't know how it was 1.5. That's what she said. So I'm just going with it. So Space Seed was not a popular choice. And yet look how well it worked out for Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan. It was the perfect tether. It was. She ends her, her musings, I should say, with the question, how many good sequels could be made by going back to the old TV series and tying up loose ends. And it's a great point, right? Because if you look at, sorry, Shatner, Star Trek V, for example, (laughs) it would have been better off to go back maybe and rewatch some episodes and go, oh, there's an interesting point we could continue. Let's do that. Instead, we got Star Trek V. So there you go. There you go. 1982 was synonymous for Star Trek fans with the release of The Wrath of Khan. But there were actors within the Star Trek universe that worked on things beyond The Wrath of Khan. In fact, Leonard Nimoy was wrapping up his successful series, In Search Of. Cutie Pie, you were a big fan of In Search Of. What was it like to have this series end on the verge of the release of The Wrath of Khan? Well, I mean, I watched it on TV. You know, I know I watched it for several years, but I didn't really notice when it ended. I, and I don't remember seeing any anything that said, like, well, that it got canceled or anything. It, they must have just stopped showing it. It was more of an abrupt ending. Yeah, yeah, it was. Persis Kambata, who played Ilea in the motion picture. She grew her hair back. And was featured in Megaforce. Yeah, and I I saw Megaforce just because I wanted to see her in it. (laughs) I I mean, you know, like someone who was in search of the motion picture that I had never seen before. And it's like, wow, now she's got a new movie out. The hardest working man in show business, William Shatner, debuted a new television series in 1982, T.J. Hooker. Yeah, I definitely remember watching T.J. Hooker. It was a fun show. I, it back then it wasn't really it wasn't like my favorite show or anything, but I watched it, you know, because William Shatner was on it, and and he was pretty cool. And and then I remember too, and it also had Adrian Zmed, who who I knew from Greece too, because I loved him too. But yeah, William Shatner, I thought he I thought he did a great job. It was um, and and I did see his character kind of as as a Captain Kirk. He kind of he acted the same way. He was he was a man of action. Also that year, William Shatner was featured in Airplane 2. Yeah, Airplane 2 was a great movie. Um, and I saw it, actually I think I still, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on TV, but the thing is I still saw that one before I saw the first one. But, you know, but I do remember thinking of Airplane 2 as, as a science fiction movie because it took place in the future. And, and of course it had William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he stole the show. Didn't come in it until the end. 
And it was so funny. I mean, you realize how versatile he is as an actor. Yeah, doing comedy, which I didn't think back then that it was like, you know, it just didn't occur to me like that. It's such a radical change from drama. But yeah, but I thought he did great in that part. So think about it. Three feature productions that he was involved in in 1982. When we think of Fantasy Island, if we think of not only Mr. Rourke, but of also of Tattoo. I mean, Fantasy Island was a hugely popular series. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, everybody was making references to Smiles, everyone, or Boss, the plane, the plane. What do you think about Ricardo Montalban's eponymous character of Mr. Rourke in Fantasy Island? Um, uh, Yeah, he he did such a good job on that. He was just the, you know, the the elegant leader who was very wise, and it, yeah, and it was a great show to watch. I I loved, you know, seeing who the guest stars were every week. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah. Like Fantasy Island and Love Boat, those are two shows that were based on the guest stars for me. Yeah, exactly. I watched both of them, but but Mr. Rourke was um was a really neat guy. Oh, and of course the accent too. It was great. And the fact that he played such dynamically different characters in 1982. Mr. Rourke was very hospitable, happy, welcoming. And then we have Khan, who is deceitful and cunning. Just shows the power of his acting ability, how he can change his personalities so extremely. And aren't we lucky that he was um, he was actually available to do Wrath of Khan because yes. you know so he he was the one who played Khan back in the sixties and then and then um, when he when he was doing Fantasy Island I mean the thing is he was doing that show and then Wrath of Khan came along and so and he was very much you know had made a name for himself on Fantasy Island so it's good that he was available to do Wrath of Khan and it's been noted before that if the Wrath of Khan was filmed in a Hollywood movie style, not the TV style that it was filmed in, that we might not have gotten Ricardo Montalban on it. His schedule might not have opened up for it. Yeah, that's right. So it's great that he could do it. This is Mark Nacaredo, creator of The Romulan War, a Star Trek fan production. The Romulan War is set in the Prime Trek universe in the 22nd century during the era of Captain Archer and the NX-01 Enterprise. Our film covers the war between Earth and the Romulan Empire, the key historical event which leads to the creation of the United Federation of Planets. For complete info on our film and all the other story content, visit our website at www.theromulanwar.com. Jolan True. future conventions here are some of the conventions that were coming up in 1982 and 1983 that were advertised in starlog magazine western recon which was a star trek sci-fi fantasy convention held at the ramada inn salt lake city utah november 12th through 14th 1982 love of trek a trek and space exploration convention Holiday Inn, Omaha, Nebraska, February 11th through 13th in 1983. Well, that sounds like a neat convention. Sure does. <laughs> it kind of sounds almost like Starbase Indy. Dixie Trek, 83, Oglethorpe University, Atlanta, Georgia. It's run by the Atlanta Star Trek Society, care of Linda Lee. 
March 26th through 27th, 1983. Yeah, Dixie Trek was my first Atlanta convention. I mean, this one, yeah, I did hear that that's how it got started, by that Atlanta um, Science Fiction Society, and that it, it was at Oglethorpe University, because when I went, it had moved to a hotel. But, um, yeah, that is neat. So it, it was going on back then in 83. That's pretty, I mean, when you think about it, the roots of Star Trek, many of the conventions at that time were, or people who get were gathering around learning about Star Trek were at universities. So it's not shocking that this con was held at a university. It makes sense. Yeah, and it was probably students there that that started it. And I think they were just getting together at first and just having meetings and then decided to make it a con, which was cool, you know. And, and there was one time in Atlanta, I, I did go to what they called a mini-con that was at Oglethorpe University. It, it's a beautiful campus, by the way. It's Yeah, oh, wonderful really cool. architecture to their buildings. Yeah. That's really cool. Soul 3 trek at the grand hotel hotel in birmingham england may 27 through 30th 1983 okay trek fans in england love it yeah amazing yeah trek was popular all over the world but but that is neat they liked it in england even before patrick stewart (laughs) (laughs) hey greetings and welcome this is burt bruce uh, we're going to deal with Soaring Column by David Gerald. The uh, article is entitled, Where No Fan Has Gone Before. Before we uh, deep dive into this article, which is pretty good, want to preface it by saying that David Gerald can kind of be prescient. He sees the future and foretells it 40 years before it comes to pass because the things he touches upon here are just as relevant today. Um, he mentions in the article... Uh, it concerns Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He's still on that tangent. This is, of course, December of 1982, so we're still very enamored of Star Trek II. It's a very good movie, and uh, many feel it's the best of all the Star Trek films. I'm one of those folks. So he says there's a game being played, and it's called Make Someone Wrong. And he said you only need to look at the fan letters column of this magazine, Starlog, or almost any magazine for that matter, to see how it is played. It works like this. And he proceeds to quote, those idiots of Paramount, how dare they kill Spock? Don't they know? Dot, dot, dot. It's better than the first movie. It's worse than the first movie. Why did they dot, dot, dot? Do you get the idea? It's an unspoken statement that underneath each of these statements, someone screwed up, somebody did wrong. And we all do it, of course, and that's as relevant today in 2023 on any social media. We can deem it happens on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, uh, MySpace. Anyway, uh, we do do this game where we're very uh, judgmental, and uh, I think our Lord and Savior said it best, judge not lest ye be judged, but it's in our nature it's inherent to say, oh, I didn't like this, I didn't like that, I didn't like, everyone's a Siskel and Ebert. And he goes on to say, really, the only people who have a right to uh, make any kind of judgment call are Paramount because they're the ones putting the money out to make the movies. And they're the ones taking the big risk to try to get your, at that time, movie ticket dollar of $5. So $5 then, of course, is now $15 today in most movie-going venues. Even on a matinee, I noticed uh, that what was used to be a matinee price of... uh, $2 in 1982 now is $10. 
and that you think you're getting off cheap. And they wonder why no one's going to the movies anymore. Yeah, I'm going to pay my 10 bucks to see The Little Mermaid. No, I'm not. <laughs> For the matinee. The regular feature is 15 and let's say you've got three kids and a wife and yourself, you're going to spend well over $100 for movie night in this day and age. Anyway, all right, back on track. Second game is called Which One is Better? And it's actually a variation of the first one, Make Someone Wrong, but it's a big enough subcategory to deserve its own special attention. And it's played like this. This is the movie they should have made first or good. Now we can throw the first movie away. Now, here's the bad news. Who asked you to vote on it? Yeah, this is true. Your opinion in the matter is ir irrelevant. So is mine, by the way. And mine, Bruce, Bert Bruce. You don't get a vote. Have you noticed that Paramount Pictures did not ask any of you to choose one or the other? You already got both, so it doesn't matter. Now, he's referring, of course, to Star Trek The Motionless Picture versus Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. So back to that. You already got both pictures. So it doesn't matter if one is better than the other, does it? Will your opinion or mine change one frame of film? No, of course not. So your vote on which one is better is irrelevant. You voted when you paid your five bucks again. Five bucks for a movie. Don't we wish we could pay five bucks now? That was your vote. Whether or not you wanted to see the picture, that was the only vote that mattered. I told you this was bad news, didn't I? Now, it may be that the first picture really was a mistake, but maybe it was the kind of mistake that had to be made so it could be re recognized as a mi mistake so they would know not to do it again in the next picture. And maybe there are things in the second picture that look like mistakes to you. Maybe those were mistakes that had to be made because they looked like the right choice at the time. It's only after the fact that we can see clearly what worked and what didn't. Again, we need to acknowledge the courage and commitment of the people who made both films. They were the ones who went out on the skinny branches and took the risks. So which picture is better is irrelevant. You already got both. And based on the results at the box office, you liked both enough to go back and see each of them several times. The third game is We Know Better, the audience that is, the fan. This one is a combination of both of the above games, which one is better and make something wrong. For example, we fans know better than those idiots of Paramount. It's easy to play. You start by taking a position. Pick something that you want to believe in. It doesn't have to have any relation to what is what is in fact so, or the uh, actual facts. In fact, the best positions never do. Now evaluate the picture from that position. Does it support your position? Then it's a wonderful picture. Does it disagree with your position? Then point out where it disagrees. Obviously, those are its flaws. Now, this is a very, very good point. Okay, we all have bias. And, you know, it's, be it either political bias or religious bias or whatever form of bias it takes. We come to it from our own viewpoint that, you know, we're either going to hate it or love it on uh, the presumption of what our uh, presumed uh, opinions are. Does it make the movie better or worse? Not really. What it does is just heighten or uh, give our uh, opinion more validity. In other words, hey, I like Star Trek too. It, it reached back to the episodic uh, Star Trek of old and used uh, Ricardo Montalban. Or you could say, hey, Star Trek The Motion Picture was more serious hard science fiction that tried to delve into uh, deeper themes. Is either one more valid than the other one? Not really. 
you know, you're going to, whatever your opinion is, you're stuck to it. He goes on to uh, present that he was on a symposium with a Marxist and a feminist and so on and so forth. And they each gave their own worldview. And he found himself very distraught that they were very uh, uh, adamant in their own opinions and they weren't coming off it, which we're all guilty of. At the end of the article, he goes on to say, these are wonderful games. They'd have to be. So many people are such dedicated players. So many of us are continually playing them. Obviously, we wouldn't be doing this unless we were getting a terrific payoff. What's the payoff? The player gets to be right, and the other person gets to be wrong. There's only one problem with being right. It isolates you from the people around you. Nobody likes to know it all. I mean, think about it. Who likes to hang around with someone who's being right all the time? It doesn't have a... It doesn't leave a lot of room for anyone else to contribute. Playing the game of being right diminishes the people around you. They stop being your partners and start being your victims. He quotes Robert A. Heinlein, writing his Lazarus Long, once said, If you're right, apologize immediately. And he says, David Gerald says he finally begins to understand what that meant. And these uh, other points in the article, he goes on to say, Let's play the game of if you uh, really want to make the game interesting, you can play it for keeps. How does this sound? Whoever makes the best Star Trek movie picture gets to make another one. The other one gets, the loser gets killed. So this is how your vote begins to get interesting, doesn't it? So which picture did you like better? Star Trek motion picture or Star Trek II Wrath of Khan? Think carefully now. Be certain of your choice. If you choose the first one, we'll snuff, or i.e. kill Harv Bennett, if you choose a second, we'll cancel out Gene Roddenberry's ticket. Yeah, I think both of their tickets have been canceled a long time now. In fact, we can even extend the game. Which actors do you like best? We'll kill the ones you don't like. And the writers, too. You didn't like City on the Edge or Forever? Great, guess what? We'll put out a contract on Harlan, Harlan Ellison. You prefer Cinefantastique to Starlog? Let us know. We'll commit Ritual Sapuki. Harry Carey, uh, ritual suicide. And let's include fandom. How about all those fans who show up at conventions who are obviously the wrong kind of fans? Why don't we snuff them out at the door? In fact, we ought to make it mandatory for fans to carry weapons so they can waste anyone who disagrees with them. It'll be just like real life, won't it? It's kind of funny. That's I didn't... I, I saved that for last because I do kind of think it's funny because now... In 2023, everything does seem to be life or death from politics. You know, are you a Trump or a Biden? I hate to get political. I'm sorry. I did. But from our politics to our movie choices to our uh, food choices, everything seems to be all or nothing. And uh, it's uh, it's wearisome, wearisome. It tires me out. You know, can't people uh, accept each other's choices and just say, OK, well, I didn't care for it, but I understand that you did. I respect your right to choose. Anyway, it's a great article. It's as relevant today in 2023 as it was back in 1982. 41 years later, and David Gerald's knocking it out of the park. David Gerald, my hat is off. I doff my cap to thee. You are a dab hand at writing science fiction articles for a little star blog. Anyway, it's a good article, and uh, I couldn't agree more. We do seem to have the need to be right all the time, and... Uh, it's not the hill I want to die on. It is not the hill I want to die on. Wonderful article. Thank you, listeners. If you've enjoyed this, I'm Burt Bruce. If you haven't, I'm still Burt Bruce. So we recently went to Con K, the Doctor Who convention in 
Huntsville, Alabama, we had the privilege of moderating the panel with Sandy Gimpel, also known as professional stunt woman and the one behind the mask in costume of the Salt Vampire in the original series, and she played one of the Talosians. So I was on stage moderating and interviewing her. You being in the audience, what did you think about the panel? Oh, I love the panel. So I, th- I thought you did a good job moderating. You didn't ask a lot of silly questions. You asked relevant questions. And um, she got to talk about her book. She does have a new book that's out, and so, you know, she wanted to talk about that. And, and she was just um, <clears throat> a really entertaining lady. Um, and it's interesting that she, you know, she goes as far back as when Elvis made movies. She was a dancer in some of his movies. And so that that was just neat to learn, and yeah, and her history with Star Trek being the salt vampire and the episode The Man Trap, and all that was involved in her being a Talosian, going yes. under the makeup, having that little pump in her fist, so she was actually pumping up the veins in her head. It wasn't a special effects guy, but she was doing that. Yeah, no, I mean it was all neat. It was a very interesting experience, and you know. It was just great to hear her talk about it. And we also took her her agent out to dinner, too. We had a wonderful time at dinner. Like, that's one of the things that's fun about the Star Trek conventions is, yeah, it's great to go into the dealer's room. It's great to see all the panels and meet the celebrities. But getting to know people, not only fans, but also the celebrity guests on a personal level is so enjoyable because they've got so many unique stories outside of the realm of of Star Trek. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she's been a stunt woman on a lot of different things, like um, Lost in Space. Airplane. Yes. Yeah. She is credited with the first ever female close fist fight scene in cinema. Because previous to the nineteen late 1970s, women were only allowed to pull hair and scratch. They couldn't close fist punch. Yeah, amazing to hear things like that. But she broke the ground. She broke that barrier. So she has an amazing book out. We're going to put a link in our show notes, how you can find out more about it. I mean, this this episode has turned into two awesome women who have two awesome books. Yeah, it's great. Highly recommend our listeners check out all that Sandy Gimpel is doing. And then also at Con K, we met John Peel, a, a British writer. That's right. He's great. And he uh, wrote some Doctor Who books and some of the Star Trek novels. Numerous Star Trek novels. Objective Bajor and Death of Princes. And he was a great guy. And he, he actually um, was on our panel with us. We did a panel called Time Travel in Star Trek, or When Star Trek Goes Timey-Wimey. And, yeah, he had a lot to contribute to that. Again, a celebrity who is also a fan, I always think that's cool because he has deep Star Trek knowledge. Yeah, he was great. Saturday, William Shatner. T.J. Hooker is the name. Today's tough cop. I like doing my job. Fighting for justice. There's a war going on out there on our streets. People are scared. A special 90-minute premiere. Freeze! William Shatner is T.J. Hooker. Then, a master hunter tracks his kill. Where are you, Hook? On Fantasy Island. Saturday. Introducing the complete ones. New Yorker Fifth Avenue and Cordoba. The New Yorker Fifth Avenue, truly impressive value in a luxury car. Imagine, 43 standard luxury features. And the classic Cordoba, the most exceptional value in a personal luxury car. This Cordoba is equipped with 21 luxury features. Both 
are protected for five years or 50,000 miles. The complete ones from Chrysler. Starlog Magazine, issue number 66. Cover date, January 1983. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Nimoy on cons. This is from Leonard Nimoy in Los Angeles, California. He says, I've been reading in Starlog with great sympathy about the experience you, Carrie, and others went through in Houston. What can I say? I, too, have contributed time and money to some of the worthwhile fan gatherings. I appeared at three different cons in New York without asking for or receiving a dime in salary or expenses. Yes, at other cons, along with my fellow workers, I have been well paid. I never gave anybody in Houston any reason to believe I might make a, quote, surprise unannounced appearance, unquote. Above all, I have tried to associate myself with those gatherings which had professional merit and where I truly believe the intentions went beyond the making of millions from the love and pocketbooks of the fans. I must sadly report that I sensed in, ad- in advance that the real ultimate fantasy was Jerry Wilhite's dream of making millions. On the other hand, I am extremely proud of the way you and my cohorts treated those who did come. So this is a follow-up to our last episode. We interviewed Larry Nemechek because he was on hand at this convention, Houston Con, 1982, also known as now the Con of Wrath. It was a disaster. Leonard Nimoy was not there, and he's giving his feelings about it and, and how it's a mess. Yeah, so so it is interesting that he took the time to write a letter to Starlog and yeah, that that is nice that he, you know, apologized for, for Carrie O'Quinn's bad experience there. Mm-hmm. So so we know that Leonard Nimoy uh read Starlog, which is good. Yeah. And um and that was interesting that he did some cons for free too, which he says in that letter. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean asking someone to take time out of their day to meet fans. Yeah, it's it's unheard of. He he was just an amazing person. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Leonard and Koenig, the plays the thing. In addition to their frequent convention appearances, Walter Koenig and Mark Leonard are preparing a one-act play to take on the road with them, tentatively titled Actors. The comedy drama has been done in actors' workshops before, but has never been featured as a professional production. The play is an investigation of the lives of people who work on stage, but different in the way that anybody else had done it before, the good parts and the bad parts, and what drives people to do what they do, the satisfaction and joys of it along with other parts, Leonard reported. It's a kind of microcosm of of our lives in the world. It's a significant play, and yet it's very entertaining. That's one of the things that I find unique about being a Star Trek fan is it's the only genre of television or movies where I actually care about the actors outside of their characters, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, you want to know I what they're them. doing. Yes, yes. Not only do I want to know what they're doing, I'm interested in their other forms of expression 
of art, whether it be other movies, TV shows, or stage plays. And so many people in Trek are involved in theater. It's always neat to read these things about them. And, yeah, and then, and then it's like, oh, I, when you read this in Starlog, it's like, you want to see that. Like, gee, I hope I get to see that play. But, I mean, but, it, you know, it's not like they traveled that far to all over the country. But I'm I'm awed at the the talent that they have because it's a very different animal performing on television, performing in movies, and performing in theater. And you find out when you get to know some of these Star Trek actors that many of them, their first love and their passion is live theater. Yeah, a lot of actors seem to say that, that, that they really prefer live theater because you get more direct interaction with the audience. New Trek Voyages, Old Twilight Zoned. Pick any new movie these days. Now check the bookstore, and you'll probably find several books about it, all published within months of the film's release. For those who may have forgotten, the first and perhaps the best making-of book examined Star Trek. Now there's pocketbooks the making of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. On the other hand, Twilight Zone fans will discover a wealth of fascinating information in Mark Scott Zickrey's Twilight Zone Companion. The 464-page volume from Bantam retails for $9.95 and is a profusely illustrated show-by-show guide to the series' five years CBS broadcasts. All right, we have both these books in our collection. Excellent books, but I think it's interesting... When we look at it, Alan Asherman, we know he has a long connection with Star Trek. And he would continue to have so not just Star Trek, but a, a lot of science fiction. This guy really knows his stuff. So The Making of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, excellent book. We'll be talking about it at a future podcast. But interesting, in this same blurb, they link together The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark mm-hmm. Scott Zickrey, which... Growing up, I love watching Twilight Zone. People would ask me, what are your favorite science fiction? I would say both. I'd say Star Trek and, and Twilight Zone. I love them both so much. But Mark Scott Zickrey ended up writing for Star Trek years later on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and so he he was also a Twilight Zone fan. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And and we got to meet him at a con. Yeah, amazing when you look at that, though, that this guy, his his heart was in Twilight Zone. He's involved in a lot of science fiction. He's a major collector, especially of Golden Age television science fiction memorabilia and books. But to see them both linked together is pretty awesome. Farewell Action After nearly a decade of service to Star Trek fandom, a piece of the action, the monthly bi-monthly report of the Star Trek Well Committee, has reached mission's end. Well, it's interesting because before Starlog Magazine, this is how Star Trek fans got to understand what was going on, all the news in the world of Star Trek, through all these fanzines, all these newszines. And we, we collect these fanzines now, and they are pretty amazing. Like, it, you know, just all fan-submitted material, some of it was news and some of it was stories or art. But the article goes on to say that the Well Committee has decided to cancel a piece of the action, mainly because of the high cost of printing and mailing. People are getting their information now through Starlog. This was like a unifying effect that Starlog magazine had amongst Star Trek fans. 
I mean, I was part of the well committee. I love the idea of knowing that there were other Star Trek fans out there. But Starlog was so special. There's no bitterment in this in this blurb about a piece of the action being canceled. It says, Starlog bids a fond farewell to a piece of the action and congratulates the newsletter staff past and present for its distinguished publication record. Fortunately, the Star Trek Well Committee itself continues to operate, and it gives the address. Okay, so they would continue the Well Committee, just not the fanzine. Yeah, and we see this is the era of fanzines now dwindling down. Hi, this is Greg Cox. When I want to hear more about Star Trek, I tune into Starpod Trek. Beauty and the Business. This is an article by Ed Naha. All about Laura Banks, the navigator of the USS Reliant under Khan's command. Here with us is none other than Laura Banks. Welcome to the show, Laura. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, Laura. So we know that you were um, Khan's navigator in Wrath of Khan. How did you go about getting that role? Funny enough, that was an ad in a newspaper called Dramalog, which was an actor's newspaper uh, for casting in Los Angeles in 1982, and I always looked at the classified ads in the back for any opportunities that might come my way. And sure enough, there was an ad that was literally a description of me to come down to Central Casting or to call them first. And so I called them and I said, this is me. This is a description of me, my measurements, my height, my hair color. And they said, well, come on down. And so I did, and then they... Told me to shoot over to Paramount, and I went onto the set, not knowing what movie it was still, because had they put the name of the movie in the ad, everybody would have shown up. And uh, Nick Meyer, we spoke for a while, and I, I could see it was a set with a lot of bridges and metal, and I thought maybe it was a warrior, an action picture of some kind. I couldn't tell. And uh, he he gave me the green light for the part. So that's great. So so um, was it like? The next day that you had to go in for your for costuming and hair and everything? So it happened pretty quickly, yes. The next day I did go in for, for, for wardrobe fitting. There's a story of the woman that was supposed to have gotten the role of the navigator, uh, a fellow actress. Uh, Lana Clarkson was originally cast in the role of the navigator and had one line in the movie which I was not given. Uh, the course plot to intercept Enterprise was in the script for the Reliant Navigator. And due to budgetary constraints and me having just been an extra at the time, they didn't give it to me. But I be- I, I've been piecing this together over the years, and I believe that was going to be given to Lana Clarkson to say those lines uh, because she'd starred in multiple movies by then, and I'd only and I had not. I was just brand new, and I wasn't even in the union. But Lana Clarkson decided to go home for Christmas – so I got the part, and I was exactly her measurements and her height, and then and that's how I got the part. But the sad part is this woman, Lana, was the woman that was uh, murdered by Phil Spector uh, oh. many years later. Yeah. It's terrible. So, so But yeah. you, you did get the part because you could be there for Christmas. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I was so excited, and so uh, I was working a job at the time, and making calls in a boiler room for, for, for – TV packages when it was just starting the idea of cable TV packages and and they go Laura Banks you have a call up front get up here and get it and 
in my book, The Wrath of Blonde, which is out now on Amazon, available on Amazon, I go into how excited I was to go and get this role and, and leave my quit my job and drive to Paramount, where I ended up working on the film for about three and a half weeks. And then I got called in for some hand double work and things. So it was really about a month of work. Uh, so exciting to be on set. So nerve wracking to be on set, too, as a brand new person. Our bridge, of course, was the bridge of the Enterprise. Uh, the Reliant was the Enterprise, and then they blew it up. Uh, one of Ricardo Montalban's greatest regrets, which I talk about in my book, The Wrath of Blonde, is that he never had a chance to work with directly with William Shatner, and that had to do with his Fantasy Island scheduling at the time. Um, but, yeah, I, I enjoyed every second be, being on set and working with Ricardo and had the great fortune of subsequently meeting all the cast members on Star Trek cruises, at conventions, George Takei, Jimmy Dewan. You know, I'd get to break bread with them because we'd all be at the same table, either in the green room or backstage at an appearance. Or I had a chance to in introduce Gene Roddenberry at a, a Star Trek convention because of my background in stand-up. I, I, I was hosting some of the Sea Trek cruises back then with Joe Motes a long time ago. And I said, Gene Roddenberry, everyone here with us tonight, the creator, the mind, the manifestor behind this, behind this whole phenomena of Star Trek. Gene, stand up and take a bow. Well, Gene was in a wheelchair. So that was Aww. a little embarrassing. And he, but he did manage to stand up. And it was a moment. And the crowd went wild. And, and so I have these funny stories. And then, of course, in my book, I do share that I actually ended up becoming friends with William Shatner and actually going out with him for about four months romantically, which is very lightly touched upon in my book, done with a tremendous amount of humor and a tremendous amount of respect. But he's just a terrific guy all around, and we're still friends. That is awesome. Now, in your book, you talk about your relationship with Jack Nicholas as well. Yes, The Wrath of Blonde is, is in production and in promotion on Amazon. And in that, I do talk about meeting Jack Nicholson, and spending some time in his presence as a cocktail waitress in Hollywood and him subsequently trying to take me out and date me. And my mother warned me not to go out with him. But in retrospect, I'm thinking, well, hey, I'll go out with William Shatner, but not Jack Nicholson. I mean, he won an Oscar, you know. I mean, really? Like, come I, on. Yeah. I know. It's like, really? What was I thinking? You know, I, you know. Gone out with other bottom feeders before and after Jack Nicholson. I should have at least given the guy a date. But and I met him with Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson in a very my favorite story in The Wrath of Blonde. One of my favorite, other than my, my Star Trek adventures, but one of my favorite is how and when I met Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty. <laughs> yeah, it is a crazy story. And your uh, yeah. phone conversation, we'll say, with him is pretty <laughs> much an eye-opener as well in your book. Yeah, the book is kind of sexy in a fun fun way. You know, I, I kind of think we shy away from uh, our sexuality, especially as women, just probably a little too much. And it's kind of an American kind of version of, of, of that. I think we need to all loosen up a little bit about that and just in, enjoy it a little bit more. And my book reflects that. You know, it's not over-the-top raunchy, but it's actually a romp of sorts, kind of exploring my various escapades in a couple of instances. And, you know, there's an, a boulevard in Hollywood, and it's called Mulholland Drive. 
and Jack Nicholson lives there, and Warren Beatty lives on Mulholland Drive. It's up at the top of the hill of all the mountains there up in the Hollywood Hills. And and the nickname for it is Bad Boy Boulevard. It's Bad Boy Boulevard. Well, why isn't there a Bad Girl Boulevard? I mean, <laughs> right? Like, why can't a girl be bad every now and then and, and, and live to tell the day? And where, You know what I mean? It's I go a little bit into just liberating women's kind of opinions of themselves and any guilt they may have around whatever they think they should or should have not done in the past. And a lot of my book, The Wrath of Blonde, is about helpfully inspiring people to go for their dreams, to identify their dreams, and, and, and to go for it. And it probably won't work out, and you'll probably make a mess of things. But there's no other real way to feel alive. You have to go for it. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and I really hope everyone listening and who reads my book just goes out of their way to get beyond the, the, the likelihood scenario of their life and how it's going to play out with this spouse or that partner or that mom or that dad or these kids. It's like, well, what's beyond all that? What, where is your self-expression? And, 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 and the other point of the book is women that go to Hollywood to, to do it carefully and to go with your eyes wide open. You know, I make the joke now that you know, women should go with a pit bull to L.A. if they want to be an actor because <laughs> it's it's not even it's, it's even harder now than it was when I was out there. Uh, I hear there is some human trafficking issues now. So, yeah, that's another point of the book is is follow your dream. It will be messy. It may or may not work out, but do it carefully. So the book is is a good uh, inspiration to young girls who want to be an actress, who want to be famous. And a lot about what to expect when when uh, when they get there to Hollywood and to to see what it's like. Yeah, it's not just to be famous. Uh, it's also about. For me, I was always an actress in high school, and and then into improv comedy when I had a troupe with Whoopi Goldberg, and then stand up, and then writing books. It's like if you're a creative spirit with a creative spark, you know, it's it's as much following your craft going to L.A. to pursue the top drawer theatrical acting you can do or what who what filmmakers can you meet and get involved it's 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 you, you have to have a love of craft you're not gonna you can't go if you just want to be famous because that's not probably going to happen with only three percent of screen actors guild actually even working on a regular basis you know you have to that, do that's it because right you yeah love the craft yeah but star trek really is is the key moment in my life where I became a member of that family and have been so wildly embraced by all the fans. And I'm so grateful. Everyone celebrates Star Trek too, because it was many considered to be just probably the best of the series or, or one of the top best. Oh, most definitely. Uh, what has it been like uh, since you joined the, the convention circuit so long ago and you're still in it now? Well, that's another thing. I, I wasn't ever really into it for the fame VHS format, which hadn't been done before. So it was the, the largest selling movie of its kind ever in 1982, beating out Gone with the Wind and everything else. So it was everywhere. My picture was on the box cover. I was front and center. So I would get swamped at these conventions. Now I don't get swamped. Now I get generous fans coming over and sharing how much they love the film. And a lot of times they'll say, oh, my grandfather loves you in this role. <laughs> Uh, like okay okay, great okay you know uh but i enjoy it because i get to go into the green room and interact with the different actors and and talk about okay so now actually uh my book is being considered for a a, a movie deal so 
I'm excited about that. You oh, know? really? And so, gonna, yeah. Like, who who do you think would play you, or who should play you? <laughs> well, if it's a documentary, you know how they do those. It'll be probably some unknown actress that's tall and blonde that they'll shoot from the back or the side to look like me. Um, right. So it's going to be a. It would be a doc, you know like they did um, with Pam Anderson recently or, or Cheryl Crow, where, you know, you're, a lot of interviews of me, you know, and a lot of storytelling and then a lot of reenactments. I would love to sell it as a major motion picture, as a highly comedic. The book is, if anything, I think really funny. Um, and, and, and I would love the movie to be not a doc. I'd love it to be a high concept comedy adventure with Amy Schumer playing me and getting thrown into a, a Star Trek movie and being sprayed down with fire repellent and handed a fire extinguisher like I was, and then going on to starring in action pictures overseas with Roger Corman and, and, and surviving, being an extra for a while, and then surviving making these movies where I lead armies into battle and die three times and been eaten by a monster. And I mean, I just think that's hysterical. It, it uh, is, yeah. When you, you can look back at it now, and yeah, you think it's hysterical, but back then, you know, you were just you were trying to make a living, right? You, you're making all these, which, as yeah. you called them in your book, the B action movies. Yeah, B films. Yeah, I mean, Roger Corman, he's considered the king of the bees. He discovered William Shatner. He discovered Jack Nicholson, Coppola, Ron Howard, Cameron of Titanic fame, James Cameron. So we all started there. Some went, like, I interviewed William Shatner on my podcast about a year and a half ago, and I said, Bill, we're born a day apart. You know, we both were in Star Trek. I was in T.J. Hooker. He's laughing. He goes, yeah. I go, we're both discovered by Roger Corman. And he goes, yes. And I go, well, how come you just, how come you did so much better than me? And he said, talent. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you got me there. I can't do a lick of Shakespeare. So, you know, and I make jokes about how it's a lot of nepotism and who you know in Hollywood, but it really is. And then 75% of the roles go to men. And then by the time you get over 30, the roles drop down another 20, 30%. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a sad situation in that way. But I don't focus on that. You know, I, I focus on, I've done this my whole life. I had a very difficult beginning. I had, I came from a very dysfunctional family. No, I, I got handed nothing. I went to L.A. by myself with $500 to my name, and now I've moved to Asheville, North Carolina by myself, really not knowing hardly anyone. And I'm always recreating myself. And it just takes courage, you know, to keep what's next and what's going to light me up and 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 how do I get there. And uh, it's it's so much easier to just sit back and not do it. But I think that's a slow a slow curse as well. Any interesting stories about working with Ricardo Montalban? Ricardo was absolute gentleman, old school, the kind of man that would lay down his jacket if there was a puddle and you had to walk onto the carriage. Uh, he stayed in character most of the time because he was very intense on doing a good job. This was his big motion picture break, just intensity, and, and he's one of the greatest villains of all time. And it was all internalized. It was there was so much passion. Maybe it's a Latino, so much passion behind the character that he didn't show, and it came through in his eyes. You know, as a stage actor, it's movement and remembering. You know, leaning against the table here and using your arm there. In film, it's all happening in the face. 
you know, even in a long shot, there's just very little movement. So this internal life has to be able to be filmed. And Ricardo, William Shatner, you know, the whole, the whole, I believe, cast of Star Trek, Michelle, God bless, they all were great actors and they all were committed to their roles and it came through. That is so true that, I mean, we, we do think that that's one of the reasons that Star Trek has lasted so long, especially William Shatner with, with his great projections as Captain Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I talk a lot about Captain Kirk in the book and how there should be a female Captain Kirk someday uh, and, and how he is a force of nature. And in The Wrath of Blonde, I go into detail about how when we spent time together in public places and what that was like. And, but always a good person. Oh, a tremendous sense of humor and passion for life. And, and I didn't realize, as you said, Ricardo Montalban was in pain back then. I know he had health problems later on. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And, and when I first showed up on set, there was maybe 15 of us or more, 16, you know, eight men, eight women. And we were all people that were discovered on set to Alpha 5 that had been abandoned, right, and left for dead by Captain Kirk. And each day they we'd go back to the to the to the hangar where we had our wardrobe areas and the second assistant director would say all right if you don't hear your name stay another day and then they just call off people that were leaving and they kept every day dismissing people dismissing people dismissing people and until it was Nancy Rogers and I as the only women there and then and then I walked onto the set one day and they go all right here's your seat and they're showing me the navigator spot and I just was just blown away. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the good fortune of having been put in that chair. Although I think, I think that is what they had in mind for me all along. And there was one point where I was, we were filming and they yelled cut and it was Ricardo and it was Walter, uh, Connig in the and the scene where, where Con lifts him up off the ground and, you know, and he's talking to him, he's holding him up and they yell cut. And the first words out of Nicholas Meyer's mouth were good job, Laura. So that's great. In my book, The Wrath of Blonde, which is out now on Amazon, available on Amazon, I go into how going on to star in action pictures and meeting comics, hanging out at the comedy store like Robin Williams and Andy Kaufman and Andrew Dice Clay. These were my friends, Howie Mandel. I go in depth about my experiences as a comedian, which is important to me as well. So it's, it's a kind of the inside look at the comedy store in its, in its heyday on Sunset Boulevard. And actually, uh, I'm on CW in the best movies of 1982. I'm interviewed for Star Trek II and that by my friend Mark Altman. That's so awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you in Atlanta. Welcome aboard, Captain. Star Trek Strategic Operation Simulator. This was the first ever arcade game that featured Star Trek. You gotta figure this is the era where it didn't originate video games. We know that they started in the 70s, but the early 80s started realizing that they could take video games and tie it in to a variety of intellectual properties and boost the amount of quarters that would be plopped into these machines. Yeah, everybody was going to arcades and pizza parlors and playing these games. Yeah, I distinctly remember playing this Star Trek game at Chuck E. Cheese's. 
that, that, that's who, it was in Milford, Connecticut. My mother would bring me there and I was so excited because this was an arcade machine. It was by Sega Corporation. It was inspired by the Kobayashi Maru simulation that was seen in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. What made it unique is that it had vector graphics. So it mirrored those that were seen in the film. So a vector graphics, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, as opposed to the pixel graphics, you got to figure the games of that time, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong. Centipede. Yeah, games like that. They were all in color, and they, they kind of were cartoony. Vectors were slim, simply lines, either black and white lines or colored lines. So they were able to make 3D images based on these lines. Leonard Nimoy and James Doohan provided voices on this game. And when you put a quarter in and you heard Spock speak at the beginning, it was so incredible. And there were two versions of this game, too. They had the standard upright game that you just stood up in. And then they had one, and I'd never played this one before. They had the special captain's chair sit-down model. And it was to simulate the bridge of the USS Enterprise. And so the controls were built into the chair where the player sat. And the screen was on a separate console in front of you. Mind-blowing when you saw something like this in the arcade. Very few arcades had any sit-down games. Oftentimes, uh, you'd see some of the racing games that would have sit-down. But I don't remember, in my area, seeing the sit-down game of Star Trek. No, I don't think I ever saw it, but that that sounds cool. Like, they don't even have it now when you go to those retro arcade um, places or cons. It is funny you say that because when we speak to collectors about it, the reason being is because the Star Trek one is so collectible that people have them in their homes, that there aren't as many to go around when you go to the video game arcades now. Because that's oh, they, they've yeah. all made a resurgence. Yes, like downtown Nashville, we have arcade bars here. Exactly. And and what do you see? Just all the most common ones. The, the stand-up, mostly. The ga- stand-up yeah. ones and, and the ones that everybody knew that has such wide appeal. Like Dig Dug and Turbo. Yeah, think, of, of course, Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, all the classics. But these ones are all in, in homes and basements of Star Trek fans. So that's why you don't see them too often in the public. The premise of the game, it wasn't a person, but you were playing ship-to-ship combat. You were piling the Enterprise through various space sectors and star bases that were being attacked by Klingon ships, as well as probes. So there was a certain repetition to it, but there was a certain joy to it. And we spoke recently about the Vectrex game that came out in 1982. They all came out around the same time period. Different games, both vector-based, but... The the gameplay was different. Kind of crazy to think that they wouldn't have a unified game for the movie and tying directly into the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, it was just a general like shoot 'em up type of game. Kind of, yeah, exactly. I, I'm surprised that they had Klingons in this. That they didn't do something that was specific to Wrath of Khan. It would take some time. You know, this is still the early development of video game companies working with movie and TV licenses. We would see that years later that they would release things all at the same time. But still, when I was a kid, I loved 
Star Trek Strategic Operation Simulator. And, and they called it a simulator because now we think of simulators as something else, like a, a ride, that, a 3D ride or something. Mm-hmm. Well, again, you were supposed to think that you were the simulation on the Kobayashi Maru. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it, did it have a Rathacon reference? Yes. It did. But how do you not put that in the title? That That's the point that I'm trying to make. Why isn't it called Star Trek The Wrath of Khan Kobayashi Maru Simulator? Like you, you yeah, have to that think, would have been cool. Yeah, because yeah. when you're playing <laughs> yeah. it, like, you know, little me, I'm like, well, okay, Klingons. This kind of is more like the motion picture. Yeah, it does seem to fit that. Probably the graphics fit motion <laughs> picture better too, right? The idea was that you were the involved in the first five minutes of The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, okay. You know, it, it took a step, couple steps of memory and figuring out to discern what the link is with the current movie. But it was awesome. It was awesome. Anytime we see it at a convention, sometimes you, we saw it last time at Shore Leave, remember? Yeah, we did yeah. see it. Yeah, sometimes collectors will pull it out, and it's definitely worth playing. Entering Sector 1.6. As always, we close out our episodes with looking at one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This is the era before the internet, when we would look at magazines to buy things, to find out about things. This one is in the classified section. Star Trek II, the movie fan club. The international fan club for Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, includes a subscription to our monthly newsletter. Each issue has exclusive photos and interviews with the actors, from Leonard Nimoy to Judson Scott, with articles, art, trivia, quiz, and news on Star Trek Three. U.S. membership is $15 for one year. That's actually quite expensive. Yeah, but it might have been worth it. It's a monthly newsletter, too. Yeah, yeah, that would have been neat to get a monthly newsletter. But I can see how, yeah, because that, yeah, that price was kind of like, well, maybe I'd rather just buy Starlog. Quite a few of the fan clubs at this time were doing quarterly. So once a month, that's quite a bit. Yeah, and, and thinking about how they had to print it themselves and everything. Just to compare, we're looking at the subscription price for Starlog. It was twenty three ninety nine for one year. So essentially half the price of Starlog magazine. Okay. I have not come across any of these fan club magazines in our search when we go to conventions. So we don't have any in our collection. But I'm keeping my eyes out for them. I want to see what they look like. Yeah, I'd love to see them. Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. All I have to do is push this little red button. 